We all know that this is, this is what children do, right? They make stuff or do things and bring them to the people in their life that matter. Um, I'm sort of in the wheelhouse now with a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, my boys have, have taken on a love for football these past couple of months. And like yesterday, um, my wife was in Columbus. I was home with them. We spent all day. Dad, come watch me throw. Come play catch with me. Dad, watch me kick this. Dad, come down in the basement and watch me play Xbox football. I spent all day watching them. And, you know, they make stuff for me. Spencer just made it. should have brought it today. This giant, multi-pages, taped-together football field. Here, Dad, it's for your office. And, and the thing is, they're really not doing that because they want to bless us. They're doing that because they want to hear us say, good job. That's the best nine-page football field anybody's ever made for me. Or, you know, wow, you kicked the ball really far, Elijah. I mean, children after about two years old become attention and approval addicts. They snort that stuff. I mean, they just are desperate for approval and attention. They want you to say, good job, that's just great. And we've all done that. Our parents had stuff. We all know that getting the approval of our parents is a big deal. And I know that some of you had that approval and some of you didn't. But regardless, the approval of parent figures in life makes a big difference as to what your personality becomes in your adult years too. So let's put that on the shelf, let it simmer a little bit. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Um, We're working our way through the book of Matthew. We said that Matthew is one of the four Gospels, the biography of Jesus. And we learn about the life and teachings of Jesus in Matthew. And Matthew's unique flavor of the four Gospels is his was written specifically to a Jewish crowd trying to put together for the Jews that Jesus was the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah. So he's going to be pointing to a lot of the prophecies or indicators in the Old Testament and saying, see, Jesus fulfilled these indicators He's the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He's the one who's going to bring in the kingdom of God. One of those indicators was that there would be an Elijah-like figure in the New Testament, Elijah being a prophet from the Old Testament, and there's prophecy in Malachi that said, Elijah will reappear to introduce Jesus. And what Matthew helps them see is John the Baptist was that Elijah-like figure who appeared at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John the Baptist came telling people, repent, which means change your heart. And also he came saying, somebody's coming that's greater than I. Somebody who's going to bring the Holy Spirit and immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And he was telling them the Messiah, the King of Israel, has arrived. All right, so we're going to pick back up in Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to talk about it. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now let's walk through this a little bit. Um, one of the first things that we're going to see here is this is one of the unique places in all of written history. If you're familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, if you have a church background, you're probably familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that there is one God who manifests himself in three distinct beings, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is one moment in written history when this happens for everyone present to see at the same place, at the same point in history. You have the Son, Jesus, standing in the water, identified as God's Son. You have the Holy Spirit taking the form of a dove, descending onto Jesus. And you have God the Father speaking from heaven. So we see all the beings of the Trinity in their distinct forms, in the same physical place at the same physical time, okay, represented differently. Um, just data point, do with it what you will. I want to talk for a couple minutes about baptism. Um, the Bible is clear that God wants baptism to be a part of every follower of Jesus' faith journey. Okay, let's just look at Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Very clear, black and white, command from Scripture, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So there's no doubt that Scripture affirms that followers of Jesus should be baptized. But we have this issue in the church today that affects many people, and it's a charged issue, and that is this. Now, in Jesus' day and time, um, when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the writings in the early church, baptism was done to adults. It's like you consented. You said, I want to be baptized, and you were baptized. Somewhere, centuries later, the church began to baptize babies. So now we have this group of people who have been baptized as a baby, as I was, but never as an adult, which can create some tension because there's this biblical model of adult baptism, but there's this church practice model of infant baptism. So there might be two groups of people here today who have never been baptized as an adult. Either you've never been baptized at all, or you were baptized as a baby but not as an adult. I want for you to approach this with an open mind and an open heart. Understanding that I'm not going to judge you and you shouldn't even do anything just because you feel judged. You shouldn't be baptized or avoid it based on the judgment of other people. 
and I'm not going to think any less of anybody and hold great respect for, for many of my friends who this is an issue for. So just open mind, ready, go. Okay, Jesus, Son of God, comes on to the scene. He's 30 years old. He has been dedicated as a baby in the temple and circumcised. This is what Jews did. I mean, every Jewish boy was circumcised. His parents made the decision to set him aside for God. The ritual was performed to set him aside for God. It was done. Then Bar Mitzvah sort of dedicated again to God when he was 12, 13 years old, okay? And we have those accounts in Scripture. Jesus had fulfilled those. Now he's standing in the water with John the Baptist. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Repentance meaning I'm turning away from sin. Now scripture says that Jesus was sinless. He was God in the flesh and sinless. Did Jesus have anything to repent of? No. Did Jesus need to be baptized to be right with God there? No. Was Jesus missing anything spiritually? Was he lacking anything? No. Jesus was completely right with God. And yet he says, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Even though Jesus didn't have to be, even though he was already dedicated with a ritual by his parents, he still saw this as an important deal. I think probably to help identify with us so that there's a kind of commonality because Scripture talks about baptism and because great men and women of faith, their journeys began at the water. We've talked about that recently in in, in recent weeks. And Jesus chooses, even though he didn't have to, even though he didn't need it, to submit to this, to join with the family of God. Now, when I hear of people who have not been baptized as an adult, and again, no judgment, don't think any less, all those disclaimers, it often comes down to a fear that somehow they're admitting that they need something else in their walk with God, that they're not complete now, that they're not okay with God now, that they're not as strong as they could be without it. But what I would encourage you to do if you're in that boat, and only you know if deep down that's a hang-up for you, is to consider Jesus as your example, who didn't need baptism, who wasn't any less without it, yet chose to, even though he had already gone through the dedication ritual from his parents, do this anyway to fulfill all righteousness. And and I guess what I want you to do is just wrestle with it. Now, I'm not, it's not my decision, it's your decision. But I want you to wrestle with that because this is the man, this is the one that we follow. We follow Jesus, we follow his example. And so you at least, I think, as a follower of Jesus, need to wrestle with Jesus' decision there to be baptized as an adult. Okay, enough of that. Moving on. One of the things that I'm really beginning to appreciate about this particular passage is that we see this, I'll call it 
ridiculous humility. It's, it's just ridiculous humility. And if I say I'm a follower of Jesus, that means I don't just believe in him. I follow his example. I follow his way of life. And what I see here is this ridiculous humility. So let's, let's think about the situation now. Because <clears throat> John the Baptist is actually a little bit perplexed by this humility. So we learn from the book of John, which was written by another John, not John the Baptist, that, that John the Baptist has already announced that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He's already said, one is coming who will baptize, will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's essentially realized that the Messiah, the Son of God, has come into the world. And he's told people this. So there's the introduction. Okay, that's the ringside introduction. And now Jesus, 30 years old, publicly being identified as the one. And with his first public act as God in the flesh. His first public act. Table set, God in the flesh. He submits to a water ritual by a mere mortal. Let that sink in, because John, John says, this guy's coming and I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. The creator and sustainer of the universe, Jesus, and his first public act is to submit to getting dunked under the water in front of a bunch of people. Think about how ridiculously humble that is. And when we look at the book of Matthew, in a couple, in a couple months, um, when we go through the first chapter at Christmas time, you're going to see the genealogy, you're going to see the, you know, the birth narrative. And, and everything is set up from Matthew, from chapters 1 through 3, to just show us that Jesus is God with us, and that God is extremely humble. I'm going to turn to you, and you don't need to, you can turn there if you want to you think I'm going to make something up. Um, <clears throat> if you look at Galatians 2.6. If you look at Philippians 2.6. My adrenaline is pumping right now because that just wasn't it. Um, Philippians 2.6. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross which was completely despicable in Jesus' culture. <clears throat> so look at the message. Let's just say this was the only passage we had about Jesus here. Think about the utter humility of this. God becomes flesh, makes himself nothing, 
as Philippians says. If we say we're followers of Jesus, that we want to live out his teaching and his example, then we all need to take a serious look inward and make sure that we are living ridiculous humility. Because it seems like it all starts with that if we're really going to follow the path of Jesus. Now I want to take the next step in that because I think what that kind of humility shows us is an extreme approachability from God. I mean, here is God becoming flesh to be one of us, to be with us, to be among us, to show us that He is for us. And He's submitting to the rituals that we submit to. There is such an approachability there. There's a place in, in the book of John. Oh, okay, in, in, in the blessing after the baptism, God says, to, this is my son, right? He tells everyone that Jesus is his son. Well, there's a place in John chapter 5 where Jesus is talking about my father. He says, my father's at his work and things like that. And, and, and it actually says that, that, it's, that um, they wanted to kill him because by making that statement, that God was his father and he was God's son. He was making himself equal with God. So that gives us a cultural clue there. That what God was really doing was he was telling people, this is my son, we're equal. When you see him, you see me. The guy that's down there in the water now in your midst being baptized, we're equals. Seems like God wants us to understand that he is approachable. That he's for us. And I know that this is such a a difficult message for us because we know our sinfulness. I know my sinfulness. I'm not all that likable. I'm not all that lovable. Especially to a holy God who's far above sin. And I'm drenched with it. But the message here is that God has chosen to be approachable. Yes, He is holy. Yes, He knows it. Yes, He's the Creator and all-powerful. Yes, He knows it. But He's chosen to be approachable. Now, there's a really neat thing that happens. Um, When Jesus comes up out of the water, which lets us know the mode of baptism as being down in the water, the Holy Spirit, the active power of God... Because the Holy Spirit in Scripture is the one that gets stuff done. He is the power agent of God. He could have chosen to reveal Himself to human beings with any form. It's like, you know, Ghostbusters, you know, choose your form, stay puff marshmallow man. Okay, any form at all, He chooses a dove. Now, we just spent the, the first part of this year... Uh, talking about the book of Leviticus, right? And, and we've probably spent way too long talking about the book of Leviticus. But in Jesus' culture, for sins to be forgiven, for you to be right with God, it required an animal sacrifice. And so if you had the resources, you would go and you would buy a lamb or maybe a goat or maybe a bull for a sacrifice. But if you had no resources and you were poor, what would you go buy for your sacrifice? Do you remember? 
a dove. So a dove was like the Jewish symbol of forgiveness for the poor. And of all the powerful things that the Holy Spirit could have chosen, He chose to take on the form of the cheapest and the sacrifice for the poor. I don't know if there's anything more that God could have done in this one instance to say, I am humble and I am approachable. And I appreciate that from God. Now, there's one final move that I'd like to make with all of this, and and that is to say that um, it was an amazing thing that God chose, the Father chose to bless His Son like that. I mean, we would all love for those moments, and if you had them, you know how valuable it is to hear a father, hear from your father, you know, you're my son, and I love you, and I'm pleased with you. From a young age, that's why, that's why we make the finger knit necklaces, right? That's why we make the flower pots and the, the birdhouses and, and the nine-page football fields. Because we want to hear, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. <coughs> and the father made sure the son heard those words. And maybe you've heard those words from your parents, and maybe you haven't. Um, But wouldn't it be amazing to hear those words from God, for God to open the heavens and say, you know, um, John, you're my son, and I love you, and I'm pleased with you. April, you're my daughter, and I love you, and I'm pleased with you. It would be incredible to hear that. But we're just humans, right? And we're not God's one and only Son. Well, I want to, I'm just going to read this. Jesus was praying the night he was arrested. It was one of his last prayer times with God, sort of pouring it all out. (coughs) And I would invite you to maybe just kind of close your eyes and, and, and try to hear Jesus. He's talking about people who would be in churches, followers of Jesus in years to come. Talking to you guys today in this room. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now if you look at the original Greek language there, That word is a comparative word, and it means equal to, as much as, with the same, in the same manner as. What Jesus was trying to say there was he wanted us to know that God the Father loves us in this room as much as he loves Jesus. So when he opened the heavens to tell Jesus, he loved him. That goes for us too. And that's hard to believe, I think. I think think it's hard to believe that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus, his son. But if I doubt that, I doubt Jesus. If I doubt that, I doubt Scripture. If I doubt that, then I'm really 
doubting that Jesus knew what he was talking about. So really, as a follower of Jesus, i got to believe that he loves me as much as he loves Jesus, that he's for me, that he's interested in me the same way that I'm interested in my son. And I think God wants us to look to him like children do when they make things for their parents, wanting that approval, wanting that connection, wanting to live life that closely. Now, my six-year-old Spencer (coughs) has begun to play flag football. And um, when he started in August, clueless, I, I play a lot of baseball with him in the backyard. He can hit the ball pretty well. When he played his first week, he couldn't catch. He couldn't throw. He didn't know what offense or defense or anything was. He just wanted to play football, and I did not push him as I stand up here on this stage. In fact, I figured he'll play for a week, and he'll not even want to anymore. We'll get out of those three nights a week of practice. Um, So it's the second week. He still doesn't have a clue what he's doing, and they're playing in their first scrimmage. And it's, you know, each side gets a certain amount of downs and then the scrimmage is over. That's the way it works. And it's the very last down for his team. So after this play, it's done. And the coach, who has a great coaching philosophy of, you know, expose six-year-olds to every position, let them play, whatever happens, happens. I think that's the right thing for five- and six-year-olds. He chooses Spencer to carry the ball for the last play. My clueless six-year-old is standing behind the center now. And the way it works is there's what's called a direct snap where the center basically just tosses the ball back to the quarterback and the quarterback runs, runs the ball. That's, that's pretty much the offense. But if the ball hits the ground, the play's dead and the game's over. So here's Spencer standing about four feet behind the center, ready to get the ball thrown to him. If he misses it, play's over, game's over. I have one concern at this moment. Oh, God, please just let him catch the ball. I don't care what he does with it. I don't care if he runs the wrong way. I just want him to catch the ball so that that doesn't end the game. And then he yells, hot. Ball comes up. He bobbles it. He catches it up here. He pauses for a minute. And runs around the right side into this scrum of kids. There's absolute, you know, chaos there. Scrum of kids. I'm good with it. He caught the ball. We're good. All of a sudden, he pops out on the other side of this scrum of kids into the secondary. There's about 20 yards, which is about the length of the field between him and the end zone. And he, nothing in between him and the end zone. And he starts running. And he's, you know, juggling the ball. He's still got it up here. And he realizes what's happening now. And he looks over at me. He's running and finds me on the sideline and makes eye contact with me. And the only way to describe thoroughly the look on his face is with words I probably shouldn't say. Oh, crap. (laughs) Uh, 
you know, it's all of a sudden he's excited, he's scared, he can't believe it. And, and he's kind of got this look like literally like this. And, and, he's, and he's following me the length all the way to the end zone for his touchdown. He's making eye contact with me inviting me into that moment, looking for me for approval. Dad, are you proud of me? Dad, look at what I'm doing. All that's going on there. And I got to tell you that he could run for a touchdown in the Super Bowl someday. And I will not be more thrilled for him, more connected, more proud than I was in that moment. And it wasn't because he was running for a touchdown. It was because he was doing well and was looking to me to share in that moment. And when I look at this baptism, and when I look at Scripture, and when I look at how Jesus came to earth, I truly believe that what we see is a God who looks at us the same way. And who wants for us to make that kind of connection with Him. That's why He did all that. So that we could know He's there on the sidelines. And He wants us to look at Him when we're running for a touchdown. Now, Spencer can get tackled. Spencer can miss a play. He looks my way after everything. Every mistake, every victory, he looks. And what I think God has showed us is that he loves us like that. And if we're really living life to the fullest, the way we were created to live life, that needs to be our attitude, realizing God showed up to the game. And he's in it for us, and he's in it with us. And he wants that kind of connection.